0: You're listening to the Sermon podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information to contact us or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Like I said before, it's such a pleasure to be with you all here today. I'm like honestly, I'm incredibly thankful for this church, for what God's doing in this church, for what God's doing in each of you. Um especially because throughout this series, ears to hear, we've gone through some hard-hitting and convicting topics and, and themes, and yet you're all still here. <laughs> it's awesome. I'm 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 impressed. I'm very excited, and it brings me a lot of joy to see how, how receptive um each of you has been uh through this series and, and hearing what God has to say and having ears to hear. Um but don't worry this morning. Uh, today's message is going to be a lot more encouraging, I think, for us as we study the sixth of seven letters from the book of Revelation, which is addressed to the church in Philadelphia. And no, this isn't referring to the hometown of the Fresh Prince or cheesesteaks. I think every pastor has to make that joke about Philadelphia when they preach on this. But this is actually speaking of the original city of Philadelphia, which was founded in the second century B.C. and was geologically located on the highway border between three provinces in Asia and Asia Minor. And, and, and this strategic location of the city is also why, why it's often referred to as, as like a gateway, a gateway city or the doorway, because anyone traveling along that highway would have to pass through this city or pass through this quote-unquote doorway. And part of why it was strategically located there in that place, along that border, was so that it could be a missionary city of sorts, for spreading Greek culture, which it seems like they were widely successful in doing, as we've been studying the other churches and how how much influence of Greco-Roman cultures in all those other cities, right? Um, though the city itself, in its short history, was, was consistently having identity issues because uh, the city itself was, was constantly taken over because of its location. Uh, during wars or after earthquakes, you know, an emperor would rebuild the city and then and then try to name uh, the city after himself. So the city was renamed uh, th- uh, three different times in its short history by three different emperors. So it was having a, kind of an identity crisis itself as a city. Um, anyways, unlike most of the churches that we've studied so far, or lampstands, as they're referred to in Revelation 1, the church in Philadelphia, similar to Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, was a true lampstand. A true lampstand, shining the light of Christ and shining a light on Christ. And we'll find that, though the church may have looked weak, they were very much alive in Jesus and living by His power and for His name. And, and in this sense, I think we can, we can learn and be inspired by the church in Philadelphia as to what a living, spirit-filled church looks like and how Jesus empowers and encourages them to endure in confidence. And so if you want to turn with me now to Revelation 3, we're starting at verse 7 and going to verse 13. Revelation 3, 7 to 13. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so when I was in uh, elementary school and junior high, it's called middle school now, I guess, but it was junior high back then. I was usually the shortest and shyest kid in my class. And so what that meant is that usually at the beginning of each year, when, when, when people didn't know me yet, I was often overlooked when we'd play sports, like, you know, soccer, floor hockey, or whatever, in gym class or recess. Yes, I was, I was that kid that was picked last, You know, you have the captains, and they're picking, like, oh, take that guy, take that guy. I was the one that got to stand there and get picked last. Super awesome. Outwardly, I looked like I was weak. I looked like I was powerless, right? I I was quiet and small and introverted, and therefore, in the eyes of the, the cool, sporty kids, I was incapable of performing at their level or the level of anyone else. And I don't mean to break here, but let's just say that the team captain who got stuck with me last was usually very grateful by the end of the game when I scored all the goals. And I'm sure the other captain certainly regretted judging a book by its cover, so to speak. And this is the story of the church in Philadelphia, right? They looked powerless on the outside. If we were church shopping, we might pick them last, But where it mattered, they were strong pillars of the living temple of God. In contrast to, to them, it says the synagogue of Satan in that city, and it's referred, to, it's, it's referred to that in this passage, right? The synagogue of Satan. And it was probably called this because it was run by, by certain Jews who didn't accept or allow anyone but Jewish men to enter into the temple to clarify, I'm not speaking anti-Semitism here, neither is Jesus, that would be ridiculous. But but he's specifically referencing these particular so-called Jews in that city who, who he says aren't true Jews at all because they've neglected the truth of the scripture, which prophesies and promises over and over that the Jewish people in the temple of God were always meant to be a light of God's holiness to all the nations and a, and a remnant for the day when all peoples and all races can come before and live and worship in the presence of God. And so it seems that these so called Jews were lying, right? It says they're liars. They're lying in order to exclude or, or even persecute or shame both the Christian Jews. And especially the Christian women and also the Gentiles, telling them that they can't come into the synagogue and basically saying that they don't belong in the kingdom of God or in the presence of God. That's most likely what was happening there. And in that sense, they were acting on behalf of or doing the work of Satan. Right? by trying to keep people from experiencing the fullness of grace and the presence of the Lord. This is why, as Christians, we're instructed to show no partiality. Right, But according to this passage, they, they would soon regret counting these, these believers out, as Jesus promises that one day he'll humble these, these so-called Jews at the feet of his followers, and only then will they see the truth of the love which Jesus has for the church. For his church. Well, the reality is that, the thing is that no matter how tough or or thick skinned we think we are, the more negative or or hurtful things that people say about us, the more we start to believe it, right? Right? And, and so when we stack this, this religious persecution up with the other problems that the church in Philadelphia would have been facing, problems that would have been similar to the other cities that we've already studied, political persecution and, and societal pressures to worship idols, along with the fact that this city had, had recently been shaken up and partly destroyed by a bunch of recent earthquakes, which surely would have affected their lives as well. I think life for, for the Christians there would have felt and, and looked pretty bleak. And so it's possible that they, that they may have started to believe what these so-called Jews were saying about them, that they were weak, that they were powerless, that their faith was pointless, and that they weren't actually welcome, and, and maybe they weren't actually part of God's kingdom or, or in his favor after all. And I know some of us feel that way at times. Right? Right? We think, well, I'm trying to live faithfully and I'm trying to live obediently to, in love for Jesus, but, but I'm not really seeing anything come out of it and, and to top it off, life is hard and difficult as it is. So maybe this is pointless. Maybe God doesn't love me. But then in comes Jesus. In comes Jesus with this loving letter to them of encouragement and promise to remind them that, that first of all, he's the only one who's who's holy and who is the truth and who holds the key of David. that That is, he's the only one who is worthy and who is the word of God. He's the only one who rules as king of kings over all creation. And therefore he's the only one who has sole authority over who or who doesn't get to enter into the kingdom and presence of God, which means his opinion of them is the only one that matters. And on that end, he tells them that, that he's opened a door for them which no one can shut. He's opened a door for them which no one can shut. What, what an encouragement this would have been for them. Let me explain. This, this wording that, that, that he uses here speaks to both the nickname of the city of Philadelphia, which again, as I mentioned earlier, is, the, is, is known as a doorway city, the gateway city or whatever, but it also speaks to the fact that, that they'd been prevented from entering through the doorway of the synagogue, right? But here, Jesus is telling them the same thing he told the disciples in John 10, verse 9. He says, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. Find pastures, sorry. Some translations of the word of, of that verse use the word gate instead of door. And this is, does this sound familiar? Gate? This is this is where, where we get the name of our own church from. Which, which is significant for us here, then, right? Because we want to emulate and proclaim this reality. So what Jesus is reminding them of is that he's the only gate or door into the kingdom of God, and that it's been lovingly and freely open wide to all who believe in his name by faith for the forgiveness of their sins, Jew and Gentile alike. And so for those who, who might be thinking, well, God can't accept me or, or love me or I don't belong here or, or whatever, or I'm not good enough and haven't done enough, don't, don't believe those lies. The truth is that Jesus' grace is for all who turn to him. He forgives and receives and opens the door to anyone who believes in his name by faith. So I invite and, and implore you to do that even now. Believe in his name and you will be forgiven and this door will be opened to you. And Jesus can make this claim because he alone gave himself up as the perfect sacrifice at the cross where he bore the wages of all sin unto death as our perfect sacrifice and then conquered that death in his resurrection and now he sits at the right hand of God with all authority over life and death as king of kings and lord of lords he alone holds the keys of david on our behalf the keys to the kingdom of god he is the door But this statement to them also seems like it's about more than just our salvation, but that it's also referring to their purpose as believers as well. That they've been given an opportunity, an open door, to shine the light of Christ and to be living temples in that city. Like the city they lived in, which was established to be a doorway for for Greek culture, right? It was like a, a missionary city for Greek culture. So in contrast to that, this statement is also a reminder for for the church that the church exists to be on mission for the kingdom of God, to invite the world to come through that true doorway, to come to know Christ. And so in, in telling the church in Philadelphia that he's opened a door for them which no one can shut, he seems to be simultaneously telling them that no matter what these people at the synagogue of Satan might say or think, but that through him, they certainly do have full and confident access into the kingdom of God. And not only that, but also that their calling to proclaim this kingdom of God is not in vain. That their faithfulness to him will be rewarded and will bear fruit. And it's this, this very calling their faithfulness to his word and to him, which Jesus then commends them for as well. As it says in verse eight, I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the the church in in Philadelphia may have felt weak or or looked powerless, but, but in Christ, by his word and by his name, they were truly strong. Right? In our weakness, Jesus is strong. This church seems to be modeling Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, where Paul says to them, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So today, again, say we're church shopping, when we think of a successful church or when we think of a successful ministry, what do we often think of? My guess is that many of us would think of something like the church in Sardis, which we discussed last week. And as I said last week, that these days that type of church might look like one of those energetic churches with the large attendance and cutting-edge technology and catchy purpose statements and a huge budget and polished pastors and speakers and programs and professional worship teams. But let's, let's not forget that church in Sardis only looked alive on the outside, but was actually dead. And they were being called to wake up. And please don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that all churches like I described are dead. Some are very much alive spiritually. What I'm saying, though, is that the criteria we would most likely use are what the world might use to define success things like wealth, political power, social status, popularity, influence, market value, attendance numbers, and and whatnot, aren't even remotely close to the criteria or qualifiers of success which Jesus uses and looks for in his church. And so according to this passage, he's he's commending this church. So according to this passage, what's he looking for? It's so simple. He's looking for a church... That's faithfully strong in the Lord. A church that's faithfully strong in the Lord. And by that I mean a church that boasts not in their own limited power but one that moves and breathes and endures through the unlimited power of the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ. A church that that is committed to growing in good works and loving obedience to the Word of God. A church that is passionate in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and the glorious name of Jesus, both to each other and to the world. Ultimately, a church that is like a living temple, carrying with it the presence of God and inviting the world to see and know it. This Jesus proclaims to them through the Holy Spirit by the pen of the Apostle John. This is what the Church of Philadelphia was living out, and this is what we as believers and members of the Gate Church in Lethbridge should desire to become and emulate more and more to live in light of the open door of Christ and to invite others to step into it. And so we we can't forget or, or lose sight of this, that a living and successful church is a church that faithfully leans into the power, wisdom, and truth of God in order to proclaim the saving name of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen? This, after all, is the Great Commission. Right? This is the the Great Commission, which we so so often lose sight of. After Jesus' resurrection and before he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, Jesus called his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the name of Jesus and his teachings and, and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then he subsequently filled them with his spirit in, in order to empower them to accomplish the task and to fulfill his promise to them that he would be with them always. Right, And this is also the promise and calling for all believers and all churches. In contrast to that, Oswald Smith writes, any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. Yikes. In other words, unless this is for Jesus and through Jesus and by Jesus, what's the point of this? If we're not lights of Christ to the world, if we're not a city on a hill, if we're not displaying the love of God and advancing the kingdom of God by the power of the Spirit of God, then what are we doing here? Daniel Aiken writes, The fact is, the churches that please Christ are those Great Commission churches that take seriously his final marching orders given just before he ascended into heaven. The Great Commission. And let's not forget as well that when we use the word church, we're we're referring to that Greek word ecclesia, which refers to an assembly of citizens. And, and what this means is that the commission for the church isn't, isn't done just in this building. It isn't just a calling for the pastor alone. It isn't dependent on, on programs alone. But is actually the calling and mandate of each and every citizen of the kingdom of God. Every single member of the body of Christ For us as believers then, let's ask ourselves honestly, are are we we living out this call and commandment in our lives to tell the world about Jesus, about his saving grace, about his love? Are we telling people about Jesus in our homes, at work, in our neighborhoods, in the church, in our social circles, or, or wherever God's called us to do it? When's, when's the last time we shared the gospel with someone or even invited someone to join us for Sunday morning church? This is our mandate, this is our call. And and for Jesus to commend the church in Philadelphia for remaining committed to both his word and his name is is to imply that each and every member of that community was actively maturing and participating in this calling. With the other churches, he said, there's some among you that are being faithful, but I have this against you, right? To the church in Philadelphia, you're all doing great. So we can see that they were faithful in growing in the word and representing Christ and planting the seeds of the kingdom of God in that city and in their homes and in their community. And we don't have a list of, of, of salvations or, or successes or, or anything else. We don't know. We just know that they're being faithful, right? And that's the key. And so because of this, Jesus tells them to confidently keep on doing what they're doing, to hold fast to what they have so that, so that they, they won't lose that crown. And in Greek culture, a crown was, was given to those who would win a race, right? It's that like gold leafy thing that you'd wrap around your head when you won a race. And, and in the words of Paul, then we could say that, that Jesus is telling them that they're currently running well and that they should continue doing so in order to complete the race, set before them. And then to, to, to solidify this calling and to encourage them and, and to help them continue in it with faith and confidence, he reminds them of their reason to be confident. First three, he reminds them of who he is, which we already talked about. And then next, he reminds them of both their current and future statuses as citizens in and integral pillars of the living temple of God, which is the new Jerusalem. Let's talk about the temple for a bit, so we cannot fully understand this meaning. So in the Old Testament, we can read that King Solomon is instructed by God to build a temple, which was designed by his father, King David. And the purpose of the temple, like the tabernacle before it, was to be both a place in which God would dwell, the holy God would dwell with his people, and it was also symbolic of God's authority and rule over them and over creation, And the design of the temple was also meant to reflect the Garden of Eden, where where God truly did dwell with man before sin came along and and corrupted and severed that holy relationship. So so within the temple itself, there was a place called the Inner Sanctuary, or the Holy of Holies, as it's known. Excuse me. Sorry. Uh, And at the time, only the uh, Jewish priest after he was uh, temporarily consecrated from his sin by the blood of a lamb, could enter into the door of this room on behalf of everyone else because this is where the holy presence of God would dwell, in the Holy of Holies. And at the front of the temple, on either side of the doorway, which the high priest would walk through, were two very tall pillars of bronze, which King Solomon had also named And these are the names that he gave these two pillars of bronze, Boaz and Yachin. Yachin, which means he will establish. And Boaz, which means in him is strength. So already we can see the significance for the church in Philadelphia of not only the the open doorway into God's presence, right, which before was closed, only to the high priest, only open to the high priest. So there's an this open door that they've been given now. But also the significance of the names of the pillars that, that are next to it, right? So, so first of all, this is significant because telling them that they were pillars of God's temple would have reminded them that like, like the pillars of the temple of Solomon, they were established by God for good works and also strengthened by him in Christ and by his spirit to do what he's called them to do. So, so right away, that would be an encouragement. But as most of us know, these, these pillars, like the temple, along with the temple actually, were destroyed by the Babylonians and the bronze was carried off to Babylon along with Daniel and his friends, if we remember that series from earlier this year, which feels like 10 years ago. But the destruction of the temple didn't thwart God's plan and purpose because the temple was only meant to be symbolic of something better to come. God's plan was always to give us a new high priest, Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice would permanently open the door of God's presence up for all who believe in his name, a door that no one could shut. And in turn, all who believe in his name and entered through this door would also be filled with his spirit in order to be built up as temples of the living God as well. Living temples of the living God carrying and displaying his gospel and his presence to the world. 1 Peter 2, 4-10 to fleshes this out really well. And he writes this, he says, as you come to him, Jesus Will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is what Jesus is is reminding the church in Philadelphia of that those who, who who have rejected Jesus, to be specific, those of the synagogue of Satan who, who disobey the word will meet their own end as they stumble and become offended and refuse to believe. But for those who do believe and follow after Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for their sin, as the cornerstone of God's temple, they are being built up into a better and new living temple meant to dwell in the presence of God and to declare his goodness and glory to the world. And he also tells them that because of their faith and endurance for the word and his name, he says they'll be like pillars in the living temple of God. Pillars that that not even an earthquake could crumble, which is what they've experienced multiple times. Pillars that cannot be removed. Pillars who, unlike the city that they live in, which continually changed its name, Constantly going through identity crisis, right? Jesus says that their identity will be secure as they'll be given names on these pillars that cannot be changed, that cannot be taken away. They'll be given the family name of God. They'll be given names as citizens of the new Jerusalem and given the new name of Christ, meaning that their identity would be secure in Christ and that they'd also be co-heirs with him and his glorious inheritance. In another part of the the New Testament, the apostles are, are referred to as pillars of the church, and so it would have been a great honor and encouragement to hear Jesus himself, who, who is the truth and the Holy One and the King of Kings and the doorway and the cornerstone, make this promise to them. And speaking of the, the new Jerusalem, we also need to, to understand that in the end of days, when, when Jesus returns again in victory and in glory, it says he'll establish a new temple or, or a type of Garden of Eden, right? A new heaven and earth where man will dwell in the presence of God for eternity, a place where there'll be no more sin, no more hurting, no more death, no more tears. Except it won't be an actual temple. It won't be a garden. This new temple will be a city which spans the whole of creation, and in the middle will be the tree of life. And of course, this new temple city is what will be called the new Jerusalem, a place where God dwells with his people. And so Jesus is is, is promising the church in Philadelphia that he has and will establish them and strengthen them to be pillars bearing the rights of his name and his citizenship within this new and eternal living temple. All because they faithfully endured in glorifying God through Jesus' name. As Craig Keener writes, never are we as close to our eternal destiny is when we are glorifying God by worship or by inviting others to recognize his greatness. This is what the church is meant to be, living in light of our eternal destiny, living as temples of God's presence, who are being built up on Christ and filled with his spirit, proclaiming his gospel and the glory of God to the world. And our own church statement reflects this passion and desire Our church, our passion statement is proclaiming the name of Jesus for the glory of God. It sounds so simple, but it's so powerful. Proclaiming the name of Jesus for the glory of God. That's what we're all about. What I'm trying to say is this open door that isn't exclusive to the church in Philadelphia. It's a promise and reality for every single believer and church who seeks to be faithful to the word and to the name of Jesus. And so my prayer is that we at the gate would be reminded that this isn't just the name of our church, but that this is our salvation and our calling. That we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and live it out in faithfulness and patient endurance. That we'd be encouraged in knowing we're called together in Christ and filled by His Spirit to be temples of the living God in order to proclaim and display is saving love to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. Lord, that though we were sinners set apart from you, though at one time we we were not a people, but yet through Jesus, through his sacrifice, Through his death and resurrection. Lord, you have invited us into that open door. You have called us to be your people. You have called us to be living temples for your name. Lord, I pray that as a church we would take that seriously that your call for, for, for your disciples to go and make disciples, to go and proclaim your name, that we would take that seriously. And Lord, the reality is that we, we are too weak to do that in our own strength. And we recognize that. And so we're thankful that, that in our weakness, you are strong. Lord, I thank you that you have empowered us through your Holy, Holy Spirit to go and do what you've called us to do. And so I pray that as a church, we would lean into that power. We would lean into your grace, into your love, into the fullness of your spirit, that we would be the church that you have called us to be and that your name would be made known, that your gospel, your kingdom would go forth. That you would use us to bear fruit for your kingdom, Lord that you would be glorified through us as your temple, as your living temples. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.